Written on the pages of the great book of nature lies a truth so profound that it has beckoned men and women throughout the ages to seek its wisdom. We will continue this quest and study many stories of humanity as we search for this light. On this journey, we will examine philosophy, religion, and science to uncover the hidden mysteries behind myth and legend using the symbols of universal Freemasonry. Welcome to Legends of the Craft. Welcome back to Legends of the Craft. I'm here with Brother Matthias, and we have a fascinating topic before us today. We're going to be talking about the Druze an ancient sect in the hills of Lebanon that are quite possibly the ancestors of Freemasons. Let's not mistake the Druze for the Druids. Or the Jews. I've heard a lot of people make this mistake. Probably because the Druze are such a secretive sect that a lot of people don't know that they exist. So why don't we get started with the history so we can set the foundation uh, for this discussion and we can get a little more esoteric getting into their ideas and concepts. So there are many layers to the origins of the Druze people, but if we're going to take the the kind of academic historical view, then the Druze begin in the year 1017 in Egypt. Now, they're the they're the result of the work of two people in Egypt, Al-Hakim bi Amir Allah and Hamza ibn Ali. And hopefully I got my Arabic right on that. But they're this kind of like duo. Um, one of them is a mad caliph. He's known to history as the mad caliph of Egypt. And he was the uh, ruler of Cairo. And he would swing from one extreme to the other. He would um, engage people in these kind of like pointless public works program and then blame them when it failed. But then also claim that he was like this incarnation of God until people got so fed up with him, he either disappeared as, as some followers say, or he was murdered by his kind of close associates who were tired of his nonsense and they thought he was destroying Egypt. Now, Al-Hakim does something really interesting, even though he's kind of mad. He creates this house of wisdom in Cairo, which is kind of like a copy of the Library of Alexandria. And its, its goal is scholarly and philosophical studies of all religions. So, you know, he's kind of mad and he's very... Um, He's very dogmatic in some ways, and then he's open in, in other ways. He's such a strange figure in history. But anyway, this House of Wisdom had over 200,000 manuscripts and books on geometry and history and alchemy and all these like various sciences and arts and, and religious studies, and it really became a center for understanding of, of the world. Well, it's kind of a quasi-Masonic organization because like the, the kind of like learned and respected members of the community gather there to discuss all these things. So it's not just like a library or a repository of fact. It's mm -hmm. a place for people to come together and actually develop something because out of this comes Al-Hakim wants to unify Islam. So they're well into the Shia-Sunni split at this point, and Al-Hakim wants to bring these two factions back together because through this collection of manuscripts and, and textbooks, essentially, he's discovering that there's this kind of like unifying thread to all religion. He wants to bring these two warring factions back into one religion. This idea of the religion of unity will play heavily into the ideas of the Druze, but we'll come back to that a little later. Um, I want to kind of frame this point in history because it's 1017, and the Europeans are wallowing in, in mud. They're like, it's the Dark Ages. They don't know what's going on. They're all fighting each other. 
This is not the height of European civilization by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, several centuries after the collapse of the Roman Empire, they're still just they they still haven't recovered from that collapse. Whereas the Islamic world is undergoing what's now called the the Golden Age of Islam. It's from the eighth to the fourteenth century. Islam just explodes in terms of knowledge and science and medicine, and really, it's it's probably the Golden Age of Islam that spurs the Renaissance in Europe once contact is made between those two societies during the Crusades. Well, I think it's important to remember that a lot of the manuscripts that we have in the West were preserved in the Middle East during this golden age. Had, had these scholars, had not the house of wonder uh, and wisdom maintained all these documents, we may not know the works of Plato. We may have lost so much information. We would have no idea about Hermeticism. All that was preserved there and not in Europe. Most of that was destroyed in, in barbaric sieges of During Rome. the wars after Rome, yeah. whereas in the Eastern Empire, they'd actually managed to preserve a lot of that. Well, and you have Christianity too, which is banning a lot of these things. Catholic Church is burning manuscripts and, and preventing people from transcribing these things. So to kind of illustrate that point, you know, we have this decree of Al-Hakim. He says, there is no compulsion in religion. Believers have free will and reason which at the time is, is such a marked difference from the kind of Christian perspective of like, no, you listen to your priest, the Bible's in Latin, you can't read it, only the priest has the interpretation. It's a very different kind of um, uh, religious impulse, you know, on either side of the Mediterranean. One is about control and subjugation, whereas the other is about learning and freedom. The same day he makes the decree, he makes Hamza an imam. And this is a critical thing because... Uh, Hamza will go on to write the main corpus, the main work of the Druze, which is known as the Epistle of Wisdom. And Hamza is kind of like the right-hand man of Al-Hakim. When Al-Hakim disappears, Hamza is the one that carries on his mission. I kind of tend to think of Hamza as actually the more important figure, even though he's not as well-known. He's the one doing the real work. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if, if it's a cover or history just kind of recorded in a different way because... Uh, Al-Hakim is just a madman. His history is a little more interesting. But Hamza's really doing the work of codifying a new religion. I don't know if it's so new, but, you know, in the eyes of historians, supposedly it's a new religion. Well, and if we return to the decree of Al-Hakim, too, you know what it reminds me of is the the kind of the theosophical motto, there is no religion higher than the truth. It's very interesting to hear that idea echoed a thousand years previously mm-hmm. in the Islamic world, that, and especially given the relationship that Blavatsky had with Druzism in particular, it's very interesting that that idea is repeated later when the Theosophical Society emerges. No, I think the Druze had a big impact on um, Blavatsky when she traveled in this area in the 19th century. But, you know, after Hamza kind of writes the Epistle of Wisdom, uh, all these missionaries are now launched throughout the Middle East to convert people to this new idea, which is sort of Islamic in nature, but it's, it's also completely different. And... Uh, obviously, they meet a lot of resistance, and a lot of these missionaries end up getting tortured, killed. But there's this really interesting fact that I want to bring up, which is something called the Pack of Time Custodian. So these missionaries would go out, and they'd convert people, and they would have to take an oath, which is the Pact of Time Custodian. And once um, this period of like uh, persecution kind of ended... Uh, the Druze kind of like, rec- you know, recluse themselves into the mountains of, of, of Lebanon and they stopped proselyting. 
You know, they said, we're not going to do this. So after 30 years, they stopped openly recruiting people. And they believed that all the people uh, before this point who had signed this oath, who had, who had written it and said it out loud, uh, are the Druze of today. That, they, that these same people keep reincarnating through time and that that oath bound them to this like eternal mission. Uh, towards like reuniting with God. And this is very like fantasy sci-fi. This is very different from all the other things going on in this geographical area in this time. Well, Blavatsky kind of makes this point about them too in, in the sense that like the Druze represent a refuge for kind of these these ancient, ancient beliefs that are not Islamic in nature. They're kind of like uh, the Druze were set up as like a social time capsule to preserve a lot of things that were being destroyed. Even in the kind of liberal climate of Islam, there was still a lot of religious persecution and destruction of knowledge that was happening. And so it, it almost seems that the Druze were set up as a society to preserve knowledge, like that, like that, the whole reason for being of their their civilization is to preserve these things mm-hmm. throughout the ages. What for? Who knows? What do you mean? Who knows? We know what it's for. It's a mission of Freemasonry, right? I mean, we're we're a time capsule of this ancient knowledge, which I believe is Atlantean in source. And and there's actually some modern Druze writers today talking about how within the faith there's this concept that. They are the uh, remnant of Atlantis, that they're carrying on the same ideas that came from ancient times. So I think this, this time capsule idea that you brought up is, a, is kind of a, a beautiful analogy to what they're doing. And without that type of, of like kind of freezing things in time, you end up losing it because it's going to get diluted, especially in these mm-hmm. modern times with the internet and, and travel like – Everything seems to get diluted. Well, I think perhaps they might have even realized that in their own period of proselytizing. The, the, the idea that, like, you know, eventually these things are going to get into the wrong hands and they're going to be distorted and misspoken and used for personal or selfish reasons. And, and so this decision to withdraw from the world, I think, was probably a very necessary one at the time in order for, for that knowledge not to be just kind of absorbed and amalgamated with everything else that was emerging. The Druze would kind of uh, go into hiding in about, uh, I think it was 1047, um, and nobody really knows much of what they did until about the 15th century uh, when the Ottomans took over. Um, The Ottomans had kind of a unique system in which they had um, a fair amount of of religious liberty. They allowed different groups, including like the Jews, to exist within their empire without being persecuted. You know, it was definitely a minority religion, and they didn't have full rights. But for the time, it was actually quite open minded, m- more open minded than Europe. The only times the Jews kind of spring up between 1147 and and the Ottoman takeover of the Middle East is like the Crusades. They so in the, in the Crusades, they kind of come down from the mountains as this like tribe of uh, like warrior mercenaries that show up to fight for, for the caliph at the time. But they, they don't quite act as like, you know, frontline troops. They're, they're scouts, basically. They're, they're sent to surveil like the Knights Templars, the Knights Hospitallers as they like land in Syria. They're, they're kind of watching them mm-hmm. and in, interacting and acting as a liaison with these kind of invading forces. So they're not like they're not like serving on the front lines. They're, they're kind of uh, the Islamic special forces, if you will, that kind of come out of the mountains and offer their services. But really, you're right. That's the only time that they pop up in history is when, when their lands are being invaded. And we're going to make that speculative jump right now 
to them meeting the Templars. There's absolutely no proof that this necessarily took place, but there's a lot of writers that believe that what is Freemasonry today somehow was inherited from the Druze and the other connections that some of the Crusaders made, um, you know, about 1100, you know, in the 11th century. But, you know, likewise, um, as the Druze are kind of special forces, so are the Templars. The Templars, you know, when you really read about it, they're a pretty small organization. You know, at their height, they had maybe uh, 3,000 knights. And when they're in the Middle East, not that they don't engage in a lot of fighting, but they're usually being advisors, you know, or they're shock troops at a very special moment. They're, they're not this vast army. So they're, they're doing other things than fighting frontline battles. It's very apparent from the history of the early years of the Templars in the First Crusade that they were not there just to fight a war of invasion or occupation. They're not there just to kind of like occupy territory and enforce, you know, Christian law. They they immediately, as soon as they land in the Holy Land, they immediately go to Mount Moriah to go to the mosque to, to work on this very specific area. And it's apparent, again, like you said, this is speculative history. There's no, like, they didn't write down their hey, records of it's it. It's our podcast, so we can speculate <laughs> as much as we want. Well, but so they go immediately to this one area and start working in secret. Like mm-hmm. they've had a plan the entire time. And, and some writers speculate that the plan was actually to, um, to bridge the world between esoteric Christianity and esoteric Islam. That what they represented were not only these elite warriors, but these kind of um, these uh, spiritual leaders on the esoteric side of Christianity that had heard about the Islamic golden age and wanted to go and establish a connection and funnel some of that knowledge back into Europe, which was just emerging to come out of the dark ages. And it's interesting because at this point, once that information starts flowing, you have the Gothic architecture springs up and, and the Renaissance has started. We definitely got to do a podcast just on the Templars, but I mean, like you say, there's this connection I don't think can be doubted. I mean, can it be proven a hundred percent? Well, I think a lot of stuff in history are just lost because we're not going to have those facts because they're no longer available. But there's enough connection there to say that there's a possible meeting between the Druze and the Templars and that some information is conveyed. And as the Druze are much older than the Templars, um, at least in the fables and the, and the, the tales of where they come from, that this information is passed over. And then that comes to Europe. And eventually you have Freemasonry emerging, which we'll show a little later how there's a lot of connections between a regular Masonic Lodge and the Druze and their meetings. Just to kind of close out our discussion on the, uh, the connection between the Templars, there's actually a document in the Vatican archives from the Templar rules written in the 12th century at some point that specifically names the Saracens, which was kind of their collective term for the, um, for the Muslim warriors, as fraternal brothers. So there was some specific connection between um, the Islamic forces and the Templars where they exchanged fraternal information. It's not just the Saracens. It's the Druze as well, you know, very specifically named in the document. So is that enough to create a vast series? Well, for us, I think it is. And, you know, it gets a little more interesting as we start looking at some other stuff. It's, this isn't just being contained to Europe. I mean, Let's go to the Chinese-Tibetan connection, which I think is fascinating. So Madame Blavatsky spent a bunch of time with the Druze in the 19th century, um, and she learned a lot about them. She was not initiated into the rituals, but they did convey a lot of ideas. And she believed, as we already mentioned, that they're the last survivor of 
the Atlanteans, of the of the one you know perennial religion that covered the earth, and it's a little more than that. They're uh, a sanctuary for all the mystics of the world that have been persecuted. So, like as you kind of said, this time capsule. It's like all these people all over the world are getting persecuted by all these major religions, and what do they do? They're all they all flee and they go to the mountains of Lebanon to consolidate and to hold out for better times. Well, they have a tradition, at least in, in the Druze society, of, bearing, of being very reclusive and protective of their societies. During the Crusades, they're not in any battles. They're not engaged. There's kind of this like mystical force field around the Druze. The, the mount, their, their mountain communities don't get invaded. They don't get bothered. They don't, like, they don't see serious fighting. They don't see any sieges. And again, this is like they don't establish themselves as a military power. They're kind of they're very careful in um, how they sculpt the image and the purpose of their communities, so as to kind of please all sides. And this is part of why they adopt Islam. Because if you once we get into the ideas of the Druze, they're not an Islamic culture, but they've adopted Islam as a shield against you know seeming too weird and therefore attracting unnecessary mm-hmm. attention. Blavatsky also has this very interesting point that she thinks the name Hamza is based on Hemza, which is the uncle of Mohammed, and that Hamza is a reincarnation of this uncle. And what's interesting about the uncle is that in the year 625, he supposedly traveled to Tibet, and there he was taught secret knowledge by the Tibetans. Well, and it, it's similar to the, uh, the lost 18 years of Jesus's life. You know, he, he disappears from Jerusalem at 15, comes back at 33, and some people think he went in the same direction. You know, and, and Plato, too, went to the East to try and seek out sacred knowledge. I mean, India has been known in the ancient world as a place of, of knowledge and of learning. Like, people had been making that voyage for centuries before these two characters had showed up. So it's not completely out of the realm of possibility to think that they went to the East in search of this knowledge. Well, there's another connection, which is Blavatsky states that um, kind of the grand hierophant of, of the Druze um, religion is a reincarnation of the same person over and over again, much like the Dalai Lama, which that would connect that concept if, if the uncle of Muhammad had traveled all the way to Tibet, learned a bunch of stuff, and then came back to the Middle East, and that really that's the source of... Druze. Well, that's interesting because that idea, that kind of like reincarnating Lama, that's older than Buddhism. That goes back to like Tibetan Bon religion. Like that, that's a very ancient belief in that part of the world. So that would be very interesting that those two things have kind of been mirrored uh, on, on what are essentially opposite sides of the world. Another interesting note here is that Al-Hakim, before he made his decree, no, actually, sorry, when he actually made his decree, he was on the border of India. Um, he had traveled all the way there, and it was from that point that he's like, oh, the Shiite and the Sunni are but one religion. All religion is but one. And he's right on the border of India, probably getting some influence from the Vedas, don't you think? Which mm-hmm. is an extremely old religion. Well, an old religion that reckons time in millions and billions of years. Like He's encountering a culture that has been studying these things for millennia before he arrives. Well, I think that's an interesting point there because— most like Abrahamic religions, you know, they think the world's 6,000 years old, if you take it literally. Mm-hmm. But the Vedas go back billions of years, and so does the Druze. They don't view the earth as 6,000 years old. They, they kind of follow this Vedic concept that the, the earth and the universe is way older 
than we know, which kind of coincides more with modern science, with geology and with Darwinism. You know, you actually you bring up a, an interesting point here because I, th- I think it's worth it at this time to get into the cosmogenesis of the Druze, what they believe of like how the world came to be and how it's so similar to these older traditions, and particularly Gnosticism. There's not much that's been released in terms of like what the Druze actually read and study, but the uh, the author that you mentioned earlier, Kamal Jumblet, he actually provided a manuscript to an author named G. W. Chassaud, who wrote a book in the early 19th century, I think, when people were kind of re reinvigorated and interested again in exploring Syria. And part of this manuscript mentions a creation story that's almost identical to the Gnostic creation story of Sophia and the Archons. Um, so I thought we could read that here and kind of talk about how that how that plays into this link. Before you read it, I just want to add that within the Druze religion, you will find um, not only the ideas that are somewhat Islamic and Judaic and Christian, but you find um, Plato and the old Greek philosophers within the religion. So it's, it's, a, it's an amalgamation of a lot of different traditions. So the Gnostic um, injection within the Druze religion would make a lot of sense because they're not limiting themselves to one thing. Like they openly declare that truth is truth and wherever to be found, you know, it's fine. There's, there's, there's not like, oh, you're not one of us, so you're a heretic, so we can't listen to what you have to say. They actually absorb that into their system. Well, again, it plays into the idea of the Druze as a refuge throughout time. Uh, for for all of these mystical ideas that might experience persecution wherever they mm-hmm. originate. You want to read that quote? Yeah. So this is the short excerpt from the Arabic manuscript that was obtained by this French author that I mentioned earlier. Quote, When the creator created mind, he made him possessed of a free will and with power to separate or to remain and dwell with the creator. Ultimately, mind rebelled and abandoned the creator and thus became the spirit of sin which sin was predestined to create the devil. This quote is like a, so refreshing, you know, it's just like getting directly to the point and you can't, you can't, um, that's what I'm looking for here. You can't, uh, you can't be so literal with that, mm-hmm. right? You know, mm-hmm. like you can't have a Baptist because of this type of, of, of text here. This, this creates um, an abstract kind of mindset around this that, allow people to go deeper into its essence. Well, to me, it sounds more scientific than religious. It sounds like it's using religious language to describe a scientific process of of kind of natural forces interacting at some point in the distant past. The same way that we try to explain the creation of the universe through much more scientific terms now, like the Big Bang and the expansion of the universe, like we're describing a set of uh, natural processes that occurred. And to me, when I hear this, like it's almost like they're using the language of the time to best explain that, you know, that, that kind of like progression from, of one state to another, you know, and using this kind of like anthropomorphized version of a story to tell that. But really what it seems like it's describing is a procession of forces interacting with each other. Well, the word mind is something you're not going to find really in like really religious texts, Right. Uh, that's bringing to mind hermeticism, you know, that the, the universe is the all, it's the mind. And it's talking about a specific mind that's rebelling against uh, the creator here. So we're getting to a different kind of view on religion, which is above 
uh, mere men fighting against each other or, or semi-gods, you know, archons fighting each other. This is at a mental level. Mm-hmm. And for that to have been written a thousand years ago, I think is quite phenomenal. Well, it almost it's almost identical to the Gnostic Christian idea of Sophia giving birth to the Demiurge, who then rebels and, and kind of like becomes infatuated with his own creation. I mean, when I read those two sentences, that's exactly the myth that we're talking about. It's the same thing that's echoed in Gnostic Christianity. And it could be argued that perhaps the infusion into Gnosticism itself came from this connection through the Templars, because there were Gnostic sects and cults operating in Europe at the time that the Templars come back from the Crusades. There are a few groups. I mean, like the Cathars. The Cathars. I mean, they're getting beat down by the Christians, you know, uh, and eventually would be all wiped out or, or go into hiding or underground. But this Gnostic idea has never quite been fully suppressed. But Gnosticism, uh, regardless of the, the geographical area that it's that it's in, is always being suppressed. Have you noticed that? Like, mm-hmm. it's never mm-hmm. kind of open. It's never the dominant religion. It's always something that's getting its ass kicked. Well, it's an esoteric line of thinking. And that, that's always going to be kind of spurned by the masses, don't you think? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Kind of pivoting from this point, I want to, to talk about the, their belief in the transmigration of the soul, reincarnation. Now, this is not Islamic. This is You don't find this in Christianity or Judaism unless you really get esoteric with it. But they believe, as we said earlier, that they're reincarnating. And what's really interesting about it is that they're reincarnating back into the same community. So they're very much against people marrying outside their group because... They're keeping like a, a purity, a lineage of adepts that are growing each lifetime closer and closer to God. Well, I mean, it goes beyond very against. Like if you marry, if you're a Druze and you marry outside of the Druze faith, you're instantly excommunicated. Like you, you have broken your co- whatever the covenant is that holds the Druze members together by marrying outside the faith. You've broken it. And I think, I think what you're talking about is exactly it. It's this belief in reincarnation through a very kind of like genetic viewpoint and what's interesting is there's an israeli study done on the genetics of the druze they have characteristics that are approximately six thousand years old that are not shared by their surrounding populations in lebanon and in israel they're they're they are this genetically unique group of people and they're, they're preserving something again it goes into this i think every aspect of their society was set up as a time capsule their traditions their religions their esoteric practices down to their very genetics they are set up as a very specific set of preservers of of, of a snapshot in time both religiously but also physically through this genetic and this belief in reincarnation though islam will claim them as as theirs which I think they have very successfully like integrated themselves within the Middle East in order not to get beat down constantly. Um, but, for example, they don't pray five times a day. They believe that they hold the image of the Supreme in their mind at all times during the day so that you don't need to stop to think about God five times a day because they're doing it 24-7. All the time, yeah. If you're thinking about God all the time, why do you need to stop at specific points in order to honor him if, if your very life is lived to honor God? And they don't hajj to um, Mecca. The pilgrimage they take is into their own being, into the house of God is what they call it, which is, wow, it's poetic and beautiful. Well, and especially if we consider the, the alchemical model vitriol, right? Go inside and find the hidden stone. Like it, Again, these beliefs are mirrored in the Middle East and Europe through this connection in the Renaissance. But you, you have two distinct traditions describing the same 
esoteric process. Well, I mean, they do accept like Jesus and and like characters of the Old Testament. That's kind of part of their theology. And there's a very interesting story. So they they believe that they are descendants of Jethro, uh, who is the priest that initiated Moses, right? And what's interesting is that this um, this Jethro, this this priest, um, gives uh, to Moses one of his daughters, which is uh, Zipporah, the shining one. It's one of seven daughters. Now, this sounds like a very cruel act, but if you symbolically... Yeah, right, like giving your child yeah. away. But again, it's it's hiding something deeper. Well, what is what is the seven? Well, a lot of people think that maybe the seven is a reference to the senses of man. You know, we have five senses, but we're working on two more for a total of seven. And that the shining one is the seventh sense. It's this clear vision. It's this intuition that he's giving uh, to Moses and then finally down the line through... Um, to all the Druze. Well, like you said, the Druze don't um, disavow the Bible or the Quran or these historical um, moral tales. In fact, there's a very interesting idea that was propagated by um, Reverend Hackett Smith. So Hackett Smith was a Freemason in the 19th century who was a part of the Quater Coronati Lodge of Research. This is a very, this again is another subject of another podcast, but this was a lodge of Masons in London who would dispatch their members across the globe to kind of try and find all these esoteric secrets and, and lost books and lost knowledge, kind of echoing the, uh, the mission of the Templars that we were talking about. But Hackett Smith goes to Lebanon and lives with the Druze for several years to try to figure out what it is that they're doing. He doesn't become initiated like Blavatsky, but he finds out enough to, to put together a very interesting thesis. And his idea that he says he was told by the Druze themselves is that they are the descendants of the people of the king of Tyre who assisted Solomon in the, in the building of Solomon's temple. They say that they are the descendants of the very men that went to Jerusalem to build Solomon's temple. And, and in doing so, Smith makes the assertion that perhaps it was them, as de- descendants of the Phoenicians, that imparted Freemasonry itself to the Jews. Well, that puts Hiram Abiff, the Prince of Architects, the, the, the one that's really building the temple of King Solomon, as a Phoenician and as what we would call modern-day Druze. So that's a, that's a very direct connection into Freemasonry because— He's the hero of the craft. He's the, the pivotal story that all the degrees sort of pivot around, right? Mm-hmm. So um, this connection means a lot more than I think people could realize because it's, it's, it's creating a lineage beyond King Solomon's temple mm-hmm. going backwards because, you know, all these modern-day um, historical Freemasons, you know, they, they love to place the, the birth of the craft like 400 years ago, but that's complete nonsense. Mm-hmm. And this would put it back thousands of years, thousands and thousands of years. Well, especially through the connection of the Phoenicians. So the, so Hiram, king of Tyre, is the king of the Phoenicians in the Mediterranean. And the Phoenicians are a very interesting people. They are an advanced maritime civilization whose origins are, are kind of unknown. Like we, we have like these historical ideas about them, but they demonstrate a grasp of naval technology that's way beyond anyone that's around them at the time. They're able, they sail as far as England. They're the first recorded civilization that sail ships across the open 
open ocean, like that go beyond the sight of land. Because back then, navigation was like, well, you just follow the coastline until you get where you're going. But the Phoenicians could sail across open oceans in their boats. And some people have speculated that perhaps the Phoenicians are a remnant of a more ancient civilization. You know, if we go back to this idea of Atlantis, this idea of a civilization that fell, well, what if members of that civilization were out at sea at the time? Well, perhaps they didn't experience the same calamity and they would go off and form new civilizations. So if we, again, we're forming this lineage backwards in time that's supported by all of these other sources. Well, let's move forward in time. So if the Druze are the Phoenicians and the Templars come and meet the Druze, well, that would make sense in, in a lot of ways because the Templars end up having a fleet of ships. Mm -hmm. And those ships supposedly became under the care of the king of Portugal after their fall in 1321. And it's Portugal that starts exploding, exploring the coastline of Africa and making it to Brazil. Yeah, exactly. So they become naval masters. But how, how the hell did like Portugal just become... Um, this center of navigation. Well, it would make sense because the Templars basically, you know, they learned it from the Druze. The Druze are really the Phoenicians, and that goes back all the way to Atlantis. So that's that's a speculative lineage. Well, and I've even read that the uh, that the Portuguese language actually shares many similarities to Phoenician and the the ancient Aramaic that was being spoken back then, that there's this weird kind of like um, Mediterranean influence on the development of Portuguese. Uh, this is where it gets so interesting because we, we tend to think of all these things as conspiracies or ludicrous, but like civilizations were so isolated back then that, you know, one sort of explorer going to some weird place and learning some stuff they'd never heard and bringing it back will have a major impact. Like today, there's so much information mm -hmm. that it's hard for us to those, filter Those events things. don't really happen anymore because they happened yeah. all in the past. But back then, you know, just one exotic person shows up in your city and that could change a lot of things because you just, you're living in a bubble. Well, too, and it, it, you know, this is really interesting because like the, the equivalent would be today of some kind of like alien being landing on Earth and imparting some some kind of knowledge. But like if, even if you take it in a more mundane kind of way, like if somebody shows up with a Phoenician ship that can cross open oceans and, and you're a tribe that has barely even contemplated what's on the other side of the ocean or even like really building up your civilization, the ship is not only like spectacular in itself, but it represents uh, a cumulative point of knowledge. Like there's a lot of social knowledge that has to go into making ocean going ships. Like you have to know how to create a society that can create a class of people that have enough time to work on building ships. And so all of these other developments are encapsulated in the ship. So when the ship shows up on the shores of this, um, this tribe that doesn't really know anything, not only are they going to impart shipbuilding, but all of the other social advances that allowed the civilization that sailed the ship there to become mm -hmm. a civilization that can cross yeah. oceans, right? Yeah. So, so not only are you imparting one specific thing, but all of the things that led up to that are being carried with you. Well, this, and this whole thing makes the building of King Solomon's Temple different than the, the prescribed story that we get in Masonry. If, in fact... These are the Druze, right? The Phoenicians. And they're coming down to build a temple. That would make a lot of sense because how did the Jews know how to build anything? Like, they're slaves coming out of Egypt. They're slaves. They're not like the cream and crop of the people building pyramids. They're not the architects of the pyramids. No. Like, they were the laborers, so they picked up something. 
but in order to get to that point, there's so many there's so many decades of evolution that have to take place. Well, there comes Hiram and Hiram. So Hiram, King of Tyre, has to come down, and he brings Hiram Abiff with him because mm-hmm. a lot of people don't realize that Hiram Abiff is not a Jew. He's a Phoenician. He is coming from the city of Tyre. So King Solomon had to import all these people that knew what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And that creates a new dimension to this story, that nothing can be done alone. You You need the help of other people. And King Solomon, through all his wisdom that God gave him, what's he do? He goes to a different group. God didn't just impart to him the knowledge to build the temple. God imparted to him where to go look and find the people that could build the temple. Well, and perhaps this is the purpose, you know, of the time capsule, both the Druze culture and and perhaps Freemasonry also, that maybe Solomon projected this same idea into the future um, with Freemasonry and the temple. The idea that, you know, these refuges serve as uh, like kind of resources for extraordinary events in the future, like Perhaps they didn't know exactly who they were waiting for. But when they get the call from Solomon, they're like, this is what, this is what we can apply our knowledge to, mm-hmm. building this grand temple, right? And so it's, it, perhaps it's to preserve this knowledge in order for extraordinary things to happen in the future. Somebody's got to have all this background in case something gets lost along the way. Well, I'm, and I'm going to go on a limb here, take this one step forward. But, you know, the early Jews were not monotheistic. You know, a lot of people think they've always been monotheistic. They became monotheistic. I mean, they're they're looking at all the different gods in the region. You know, Baal and 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 all these different gods from the Canaanites and, and the various groups. And you know, Yahweh is a regional god, mm-hmm. right? But they become monotheistic, and it's possible that the Druze and at even earlier, you know, in this Phoenician period of of their of their so called existence is. Um, they're imparting monotheism because the Druze are fiercely monotheistic, mm-hmm. more so than the Jews possibly. And where did they get that idea? They got it from way before, you know, 1017, right? So possibly the Phoenicians are imparting to the Jews more than just how to build a temple. They're imparting them um, real detailed aspects of what we would consider Jewish theology. Well, you make a very interesting point uh, to return to what happened in, in 1017 and 1047 with Hamza. When Hamza is one of the people that's dispatched by Al-Hakim to go and spread what's been developed in the House of Wisdom. So Hamza gets to Lebanon and finds the Druze, but they already have something going on. Mm-hmm. He doesn't find people and then convert them. Like he, in his writings, he talks about the Druze having secret rituals and handshakes to to kind of like get into the mysteries like there's already a thriving mystery culture when Hamza shows up and says hey you know look what we've discovered in Cairo and they're like yeah we've kind of been doing that for a while now but you know we'll take we'll take this because you know the world's shifting towards Islam sure we're Muslims now you know that's what we believe well and isn't that Masonic because if you look at uh, even modern Freemasonry there's this concept and we've we've stated on another podcast that you know, Masons should become the religion of the area they're in. They should blend in because the best way to survive and to change the opinions of others is to adapt the customs and the language of the people that you live in. And so this concept that we find in Masonry is found into the Jews. They're going to assimilate in order to survive. Well, and the Jews are hardcore about this because you you have Druze populations in Lebanon and Israel, two countries that have actually fought with each other in the 20th century. And in those conflicts, you have Druze fighting Druze 
across those lines in order to maintain their assimilation into their respective cultures. Like if, if the Druze population in Israel are committed to assimilating into Israel, they will fight the Druze population that have assimilated into Lebanon in order to maintain the assimilation of both groups and perpetuate the Druze survival over their own personal survival. Just like masonry, um, or as masonry should be, should, uh, should I say, um, the Druze are not nationalistic. Like the the state is a temporary form, and and as you said, they they want to maintain survival. That's all that matters to them. So they'll play the game of being in this nation or that nation, but they do not have allegiance to states. They have allegiance to their religion, and they'll just go along and play the game. And Freemasons uh, have historically been that way too. I mean, the from the age of Enlightenment down to the current day. You know, a Mason's obligations are greater than his ties to country. Even though I'd say Mailcraft today keep trying to twist that back to love of nation being such a great thing, but truly Freemasonry says love of nation is good as as you know as, as long as, as it serves the cause of Masonry. Yeah. yeah. But but if if a, if a country becomes tyrannic, you need to overthrow that state. But there's still that idea that you know national boundaries do not need to be respected outside of them being convenient. Um, illusions for maintaining order absolutely and it's, it's actually it's a very gnostic idea this idea of you know transcending these earthly limitations nations and states and human civilization all this bickering that happens is really that's a product of materialism and the illusion of materialism which is perpetuated by the demiurge in gnostic teachings and and the gnostics say you know whatever is of the demiurge leave that to the demiurge we are of this world but we are not from this world, exactly. we're, not, we, we're in it, but we're not from it. Like this isn't this isn't who we are as as true human beings. We're we're this is a temporary stage in the evolution of our souls. And I think I think the Druze and I think honestly Freemasonry embraces this idea wholeheartedly that humanity is not of Earth necessarily. And I don't mean like you know aliens dumped us here from some spaceship. I mean that. Whatever we are, truly... We're not material. Exactly. You know, we're spirit, and this is our temporary abode. Mm-hmm. But don't take it too seriously, because mm-hmm. we're Use not here it. forever. Use it as a vehicle for evolution while, while you have to, but that's, this is not the ultimate goal. Well, and that leads to this idea of heaven and hell, which, you know, in, in, in Islam and in Christianity, they're, they're very distinct views of they're like they're almost like specific places that you go to or you've mm-hmm. come from. But for the Druze, heaven and hell are states of mind. They're here on earth. Mm-hmm. They're, not, they're not up in the heavenly abodes, you know, the celestial spheres. No, heaven is a state of mind that, that you achieve as you grow closer to the creator. And hell is separation from the creator. So hmm. it becomes a very interesting idea. It's, a very, it's very Gnostic and it's also very, um, it's very modern. You know, you mm-hmm. know, and thinking yeah. of these as psychological um, kind of temperaments of people, and we shouldn't take these seriously. We shouldn't be scared of hell, other than that we created ourselves through our decisions. And it actually, it's another link to um, the Vedic traditions and Buddhism. You know, Buddhism is often described by its adherents not as a religion, but as a practice. 
It's like a psychological practice in order to train the mind and expand it to different states of consciousness. It's not so much of a religious devotion to a particular deity or set of beliefs. Like it, it's a way of creating a set of beliefs by which you can um, adhere to. It, there's a famous quote um, of a Catholic priest describing his, himself as a Buddhist to say, you know, Buddhism doesn't mean I'm not a Christian. Buddhism makes me a better Christian because it's it's a set of beliefs that um, kind of sharpen the mind in terms of thinking about religion. And if we look at Druzism, it's the same way. It's very similar to Freemasonry. It's about um, forming the consciousness and assisting you in growing closer to the creator by any means necessary. You know, it's, it, there's really no dogma other than the fact that, you know, you can't marry outside of it. It's very reclusive, but really it's about intellectually understanding God. Well, it's, it's, it's a religion based on reason. So um, they believe that, you know, monothe monotheistically that there are three approaches to the one God. One is um, visions of the one God. Second is speech, uh, which is like ritual and songs and incantations that you, you offer up to the one God. And the third approach to the one God is reason. And they believe that they're following the third path, which is using pure reason to get closer to God. They're, they're rationalizing their way. Not rationality as, as I think we depict today like in, in, in science and mathematics, but a pure reasoning, an understanding of the laws of nature and of the universe to grow infinitely closer to the divine. So as, as you understand the universe, you're understanding God. Because ultimately, I would say the Jews are pantheistic. They view the whole universe as God. It's gnosis. That's that's the that reason that they're describing. It's gnosis. I mean, it's the root word for our word for knowledge. Like that, it's the same concept that true reason is an experience of the transcendent. It's an experience of mm -hmm. God. It's not. It's not some kind of. It's not some writing that you think is like, oh well, this is this says the truth. No, it's it's a personal understanding of the truth that's imminent in your life. It's experience. You know, it's not just in the mind. It's the mind having exercised these ideas to the point of a true understanding. And you can't just sit in a room and do that. You do that through understanding and then applying that through your actions. Oh, and so the Jews have a, a set of practices that allow them to come closer to this experience that are very similar in many ways to masonry and how masonry exercises limits and or encourages limits and controls on its initiates' behavior. The Jews are very physically strict. In order to, um, to move from one degree to another, because the Jews do have a degree system, um, certain physical and kind of behavioral restrictions are required. In order to move from, I believe it's called the Jahal to the Akal, you have to give up certain things. You eat plain well, let, food. Let, so why don't we... Let's, <laughs> I'm, get, I'm getting ahead of myself. You're getting ahead of yourself. So let's, let's explain this degree system. There are five degrees. Uh, there was, supposedly there were nine back when they started back in Cairo, uh, Al-Hakim and, and, and Hamza. But there are five degrees, um, three plus two, which is interesting because when we look at traditional Freemasonry, um, from the English line, you have the first three degrees, enter apprentice, fellow craft, and master mason. And then you have the mark and the holy royal arch of Jerusalem. And the way I see these degrees is following that same type of idea that you have these three and then you have these two that sort of complete it. Um, and so can, why don't you go into the division of these degrees? 
So there's two groups. There's the Juhal and the Akal. These are the, kind of like the lesser and the greater mysteries. And then beyond that, their, their equivalent of Master Mason is known as the Khatib. The Khatib are socially like important. They're, they're the leaders of the community. They're the priests of the religion. The wisest of the wise. The wisest of the wise. So, and and that's, that's an interesting point. Just because you're a Druze doesn't mean you're an initiate into the Druze religion. Even within the Druze community, initiation into Druzism or the Druze faith is very selective and very rigorous, just like Freemasonry. So, so just being born a Druze, that's just the first requirement. There are many other requirements. So if you want to petition for initiation as a Druze, you have to go through a probationary period. It's two years where they investigate every aspect of your life. They talk to your family. They talk to your friends. They talk to your acquaintances. They delve into your, your past dealings with people, whether or not you've been uh, a just and upright member of your community. And during this um, period, you you converse with the khatibs of the community. They kind of they question you. They work with you directly to to kind of like spur your mind into thinking along philosophical lines. And so this this process goes on for two years. And once that two years has been completed to satisfaction, you are a member of the juhal or the lesser mysteries. From there, you have to practice um, much more restrictive behaviors and moral kind of like rules upon your life in order to gain admittance to the occult. Now the occult is like, it's like the fellow craft degree in Freemasonry. It's very much centered around uh, philosophical knowledge. There are weekly meetings at the, at the local lodge basically that you have to attend and participate in these philosophical discussions. It's actually, it's strikingly similar to Masonry. They take a very intellectual approach to their religion. I mean, what you're making me think here is the committee of inquiry that, Mm -hmm. that, you know, somebody wants to join Freemasonry, so the lodge sets up a committee of people to go interview the candidate. You know, they look into the background. You know, are they of sound mind and sound judgment? Uh, is their family going to be okay with them joining? Are they inclined towards philosophy and understanding? Now, their process is a little more serious than <laughs> ours. I kind of wish we were as uh, as dedicated as dedicated as they are, but it's it's essentially the exact same process, right? And I think, you know, any candidate for any initiation into any group or organization, they need to be prepared. So, you know, the initiatory group must make sure that people are ready for the teachings. Otherwise, you dilute them. And it's interesting to me that the to move up in the degrees... It's a very similar process in masonry. Again, you have to give up your passions, or at least control your passions. Every every step subdue that you have, your passions. subdue your passions. Every step that you take is subduing one passion. Like every step through the Druze system, you are becoming less and less tied to your passions and to your impulses. As you move up through the degrees, you're giving up these things of earthly life that you used to well, participate it's, in. it's tied to this Gnostic idea mm-hmm. that this world is temporary. So to get closer to God is to stop relying on the physical world. So each degree, you know, you're eating less. You're, you're, you're giving getting, up one more yeah, connection you know, to le- the physical. Less, less sex. You know, you're, 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 you're moving away from physical pleasure towards divine pleasure Mm -hmm. and again it leads to this this experience because gnosis isn't a one-time you know flash in a pan moment of inspiration gnosis is an ongoing experience like you said their concept of heaven and hell these are states of mind Mm -hmm. and it's interesting to move from hell to heaven is to give up reliance on the physical world and move towards a more spiritual existence which we find this in freemasonry and we were taught 
to subdue our passions and to improve ourselves in Freemasonry. And we do that through becoming more virtuous, you know, by employing prudence and wisdom and justice and fortitude and courage into our lives. So Masonry is a system of morality. And it is very stoic in, in its approach to, you know, we must try to conquer ourselves, not to conquer others. And that's the greatest conqueror there is. So this is fine in the, in the, in the Druze religion. And it's another bit of evidence that all these sort of ancient groups are doing the same thing, mm-hmm. you know. And any group that's teaching the opposite or any institution that teaches the opposite is... Well, in my opinion, it's it's a way to evil. It's a way towards bringing yourself more into mm-hmm. matter and to kind of missing the mark, you know, just just getting off the road and just pedaling around in this existence, you know, to drink, which and will be event- merry. which will ultimately end. You know, yeah, the, the, exactly. Gnostic, the Gnostic the Gnostic idea is that true life is eternal. And and you know, if you want to delve into the what's said in the gospel of thomas and all this the the kingdom of god and eternal life and heaven they're all those kind of the same concept Mm -hmm. which is the immortality of the soul and and like in with the druze the transmigration of the soul that the soul returns it's not these it's not these flesh houses that are going to endure it's it's the inner being that's going to endure Mm -hmm. and and bear the consequences of the actions in the physical realm. But let's get into more of the, the similarities to masonry specifically in, in Druzism because uh, they're numerous and they're fascinating. So these uh, these philosophical conferences that take place in the Druze community that the uh, the uh, Ukal participate in, they're held in what's called a kalwa. And the kalwa is the lodge. It's a, it's a tiled building that is secured by an outer guard. And only those who have the uh, methods of recognition can gain entrance into the kawa just like a masonic lodge and these lodges are situated from west to east you know they have two hollowed pillars at the entrance which i find that's such a specific thing there it's Mm -hmm. you know referring to those columns at the porch or entrance of king solomon's temple but they're hollow to contain the information of the world and to secure them from future catastrophes that's something that you can't really tie to any other system that I'm aware of. Well, even more specifically, Hackett Smith in his travels in Lebanon, he was he was never able to gain admittance into the Jew, but he tried. He he's a sneaky uh, English Freemason. He was always trying to like <laughs> to use his knowledge of English Freemasonry, the grips and the and the words and everything, to try to get it because he had the suspicion that oh, these guys are practicing ancient masonry. I bet I can use what I know of masonry to try to get in. He never was able to get into a, a, a meeting of the Kawa, but he saw over the arch, over the uh, by these two pillars, he's like, there's a square and compass over the doorway into the Kawa, or a symbol very closely approximating the square and compass. Well, one person was initiated, and that was Albert this is Rawson. Where, this is where yeah, it gets yeah. interesting, Albert Rawson. So, Albert Rawson, so he was an American Freemason. I think he was born in Vermont. Um he traveled in this area with Madame Blavatsky, and it's actually said that Madame Blavatsky and him were lovers. Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote that whoever this lover was of his uh, was more married to the occult than to him. So this relationship never panned out that way. But the two of them traveled with some other people through this area, and he supposedly because he's a male, because the mm-hmm. highest levels are not mm-hmm. for women. The, the, the lower at, levels are at the second degree. I think is where the the gender division comes. The alcohol are only yeah. male. So Rawson gets initiated, and he does this by 
having some pre-knowledge. So his 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 you know his experience in Freemasonry and his knowledge of the occult somehow gained him entrance, and he's the only person on record to have gone through these ceremonies. And he says a little bit in some of his writings, but he doesn't say too much, obviously because he's bound by an oath. Mm-hmm. But what we do know is that you take an oath, and you take an oath upon a book, and the book is the Epistle of Wisdom, their, their sacred text. Mm-hmm. So just as a mason takes an oath upon the uh, Old Testament, the volume of sacred law or lore, so does the Druze take this oath on their most sacred book. And, you know, once a Druze, always a Drew. Once a mason, always a mason. It's the same concept you find here. Well, it's very interesting what you say about Rawson's preparation for this, because he and Blavatsky begin their travels in Cairo, right where Hamza started from almost 800 years previously. So, And, and it's there that they say they actually meet a Chaldean mystic in Cairo, Metamon or something. I, I forget his exact name, but he actually, he starts... It, initiating them into the Chaldean practices, and then from there, they're directed to it's Lebanon. It's Metamon or Max Theon okay. was, was his other name. Uh, but it's true. I never thought about that, that they begin— It's from Cairo yeah. that they're sent to Lebanon. So somebody sends them there with mm-hmm. some you know, with some pre-knowledge of what's going on. Now, Rawson's so fascinating because he's one of the founders of the Shrine— an organization that people make jokes about, you know, it's it's a place for hazing and go drinking some good beers and hanging out with your bros and raising some money uh, for you know for these Shriner hospitals. But when they when they organized this a hundred years ago, he's using his knowledge of the Druze, of his knowledge of his travels in the Middle East, to form the shrine. So maybe the whole idea that this is a joke is a cover it's further, for something deeper. Further cover. You know, it's very interesting because the shrine today, at least from, you know, my reading of their of their website and their materials, they don't even acknowledge Rawson as a founder anymore. But there's a quote in the Hackett Smith piece from the 19th century of one of the uh, early members of the shrine directly referencing Albert Rawson as the creator of the shrine rituals. He, like, and, and, and when the shrine was established, it was only for... Uh, Masons of the Scottish Rite of the 32nd degree and above. It was, I think that's still the case. It was reserved case. as a higher mystery. That's still the case, but they want to change it now. You know, as, as masonry is degenerating on the on the male craft lineage of things, um, you know, they want to separate as organization, which um, I think is probably a good idea to to maintain membership. But going back to the to the origin of this organization, they're basically saying only the most adept Masons can mm-hmm. now move to this further level. Going a little further with that, let's just look at the Scottish Rite itself. I mean, the 22nd degree of the Scottish Rite is the Knight of the Royal Axe or the Prince of Labanus. Labanus or Labanus is a name for Lebanon. So doesn't in, and obviously I'm not familiar with the 22nd degree, but doesn't Albert Pike directly reference the Druze in his commentary on the 22nd degree? Yes, it's it's in the ritual. And he makes a connection between Freemasonry and the Druze in that specific ritual. And I know I have some some friends that are brothers in Lebanon, and this is their most cherished degree over there because, you know, they, they live there, so they, they really um, have an affinity for this degree. But this is, this is something that connects the Scottish Rite directly to the Druze. So there's a direct connection. Now, that connection could have been made and written in modern times, mm-hmm. but there must be some foundation to this connection. And... It has to be the Templars. It has to go back to the Crusades. Well, it's interesting, too, because uh, Smith, in his paper, 
uh, talks about the Druze themselves have a system of higher degrees. They're all centered around astrology. So astrology is of central importance to the Druze. Everything in your life, according to the Druze, is determined by your astrological makeup, where, where the seven, and it only deals with the seven classical planets. Wherever those planets were in the sky at the time of your birth will determine everything about you in the Druze. And so the, the, um, the higher degrees of the Druze religion are called the star diviners. And it's, it's actually, it's another connection back to the Phoenicians, because in order to navigate the way that the Phoenicians could, they would have had to have an extensive astronomical knowledge, something that was probably left over from whatever civilization they themselves descended from and was preserved. And if, and you know, it makes a lot of sense that this is enshrined as a higher degree in the Druze faith because it would have been very precious to the Phoenicians, guarded by secrecy, because it would have been a huge advantage over the other civilizations at the time. So it would have had to be guarded by secrecy, ritual, and probably communicated only to a select few. Well, this connects directly to the Royal Arch, which I'm, I'm going to equate this, this divine, um, what was it, divine um, gazer? They call them the the star diviners. The star diviners, excuse me. I'm going to connect this to the Royal Arch degree because that is, of all the Masonic degrees, it's the most astrological, like openly and obviously astrological. And I think there's a comparison because that's that's really kind of the highest degree. You know, you yeah, there's the Scottish Rite and there's all these other degrees. There's Templars and all that. But in, in some sense, the Royal Arch completes the story of Masonry at one level. And... You can keep going down the path of masonry to get more and more lessons and unfolding of the same thing, but the Royal Arch is a pinnacle that can be reached, and it's astrological in nature. So I think there's this idea that let's look to the stars for the ultimate truth, and that ties directly into Hermeticism, because Hermeticism has this idea that there are seven classical planets, and they rule our fate, and our job is to escape that fate. And we do that by climbing Jacob's ladder. We we do that by just moving beyond these planetary abodes. But this idea of astrology having control over us is in masonry. It's in the Druze religion. And I think it's a fact that we cannot escape. I mean, I'm not talking about like horoscope astrology nonsense mm-hmm. that you read in magazines. But this this real concept that the, co- the cosmos have an impact on us. How do you escape that truth? How do you escape the idea that that the entire universe is somehow directly or indirectly affecting us and controlling us and directing us. Well, especially from, again, especially from the Gnostic perspective, if we are a, a divine spark, right? If we are a part of the cosmos, that we are this kind of fractal piece of God that contains all of God within it, but is this separated piece, like how could we not be affected by the same cosmos that we are ourselves a part of? Right. As as the universe is moving, so are we. Right. As God is moving, so are we. So really outer expressions like astronomy, astrology, the movement of the planets, these are just other ways of observing the movement of our own bodies. So obviously our place in the universe is determined by the universe itself. If we are connected to everything as the Druze, the Gnostics and really the Freemasons believe. And I think that kind of wraps up our, our podcast today, this this concept of the interconnectedness of all these traditions. You know, Freemasonry is just this kind of, you know, lone gunman out there doing its own thing with no connection to the past. Then what is it doing? It's just a temporary form that's going to die away. But when you connect it to the past, when we connect it to Gnosticism, Hermeticism, to the Druze, to the Egyptians, to the Chaldeans, to the Tibetans, 
what we create is a vast network of understanding. Like we are truly standing upon the shoulders of giants here. Like we are building upon our predecessors and we're moving forward through time with a mission and that cannot be denied. Thank you for listening to Legends of the Craft. This podcast is purely the opinion of brothers Matthias Comcier and Axel Suvari not represent the official views of Universal Clomasonry. Universal Clomasonry is a Masonic order founded on the principles of liberty, equality, and fraternity that admits men and women without distinction of race, religion, or creed. For more information, please visit universalfreemasonry.org.